So this morning we are, we're continuing our way through Revelation. Um, and we're going to look uh, this morning at chapters 12, 13, and 14. I am not going to read them all uh, because then I'll have like five minutes to speak. And you'd rather hear me speak for a lot longer than that, right? That's that. Yes, Kurt. <laughs> I was hoping for someone, and I got it. I can always count on you. Uh, okay, uh, so we're going to read. Cha- we're going to read chapter twelve. I'm going to sort of summarize chapter thirteen, uh, and then I'm going to read the first part of chapter fourteen. If you've got it with you, you can follow along. Uh, it'll be on the screen on your screen. And uh, before we do, let's pray uh, together. Uh, God, thank you uh, for this book, for your word. Uh, and for the presence of you, Spirit. And we ask God, however it is that this happens, we ask that you would speak and that we would, that we would hear. Spirit, do what you do. Open our hearts and our minds so that we can hear your voice. And by your voice, we might be moved. By your voice, we might be encouraged. By your voice, we might be changed and transformed and healed. Um, speak for your servants who are listening. Amen. So, Revelation 12. Remember, okay, feel it, picture it, experience it, use your imagination. All of that is really good stuff. Uh, so, here we go. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. Yes, there are dragons in the Bible. With seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to the throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, And you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. 
When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two, two wings of great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half a, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Okay, chapter 13, quick summary. Then this big beast comes from the sea and it's powerful and it wants to devour people, and it's violent, and it's strong, right? It uses manipulation and coercion to, to devour people. And then another beast comes. So we've got the dragon. We've got another beast from the sea. We'll talk a little bit about this later. Then another beast from the earth, and its job is to sort of point people to do things the way the beast from the sea does, ultimately following the ways of the dragon. I'm going to read a little bit at the end. So the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their hands and foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is six, six, six. Dun, dun, dun. We've all heard that, right? Six, six, six. Like all sorts of crazy ideas about that. And I've got some cool ideas to share with you in a little while. And it's not like some code we have to crack. It's not, not like a legit tattoo people are going to have on their foreheads. Like, but it's symbol. It's metaphor. This whole book is symbol and metaphor. But we'll talk about 666, chapter 14. Then I looked. And there before me was the lamb. We've got a dragon and a beast and a beast. And now we've got, we've got the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with the lamb, there were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who didn't defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among humankind and offered as first fruits to God and to the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. We will go that far. We'll stop there. Anybody confused? Did you feel it, though? Did you... <laughs> did you... Did you imagine it? Did you see it? Again, 
If somebody ever did a, did a movie about this, it, like the CGI would just be incredibly amazing because these images are just super fantastic. So a lot going on there. Clearly, we've got three chapters. We're not going to get to all of it. We're not going to be able to talk about each of these, these symbols, these metaphors. We're not going to be able to dive super deep. So we're going to stay, we're, we're going to like fly in a plane. We're going to be 10,000 feet high looking at the, at the terrain from above. We'll, we'll sort of talk about major themes and stuff like that. Uh, but first, it's important for us to remember what kind of literature we're talking about here. We have to constantly remind ourselves what kind of literature this is when we're reading it. And we have to constantly remind ourselves uh, uh, the people to whom John was writing this. So we have to remind, because their context is in some ways way different than our context, and in some ways it connects really well with what we experience today. So what kind of literature this, is this? This is apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse, apocalypse literally means the unveiling of that which was previously unseen. The unveiling of that which is really hard to see. So like John is pulling back a curtain so that we can see what's really going on in the world. There's more going on in the world that meet, than meets the eye, right? And now, who are the people to whom John is writing? He's writing to this small, frustrated, confused little church filled with Jesus people trying their best to follow Jesus in Asia Minor. Right? They were looking at the world and they were trying to make sense of what was going on. And because they worshiped Jesus and they didn't participate in the cultic practices of the empire worshiping Caesar, really hard, horrible things were happening to them. Right? Some of them, we've talked about it before, some of them lost their businesses, some of them lost the way to provide for their family. Some of them, their homes were taken, up, taken away from them. Some of them were beaten and flogged. Some of them were executed. They lost their lives all because of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire feeds itself off, gets bigger and stronger and more powerful by devouring up people like these early Jesus people. So the message of the empire was absolutely fundamentally clear. Do things Rome's way. Do things the Roman way or die at the hands of this massive military power. It was overwhelming. So the empire promised things that are really good. Promised things like health, wealth, safety, security, happiness, fulfillment, but it all comes by way of the empire. Violence, force, manipulation. It comes all at the expense of other people or some other group of people. So these early followers of Jesus were trying their best to be Jesus people, to follow the ways of Jesus, and they're looking around at the world and they're confused and they're asking themselves the question, what is going on in the world? What is happening in the world? We ask that question too, don't we? We look, at the, we look around at the world and we're like, what is going on? We live in a world where an 18-year-old gunman walks into an elementary school in Texas and shoots 19 students and two teachers dead while the police stand around for the better part of an hour, all confused and don't know what to do, and we ask ourselves, what is going on in the world? How is that, that a thing? 
We live in a world where a gunman perches on top of a building and shoots seven people dead and leaves, leaves dozens more injured during a Fourth of July parade. And we think to ourselves, how is that a thing? What is going on in the world? And we live in a world where the people who lead us seem to, to not be able to do an, a thing about it. Nothing's getting better. No thing has changed. And that's just one thing. Those are just two little incidents. And there have been incidents between when those happened and today. Those are just two small examples of things that have been happening for a really, really long time. What is going on in the world? But here's the deal. If we really think about it, none of this is new. None of it's, none of it's new. Like Things like that have been happening for a really long time, for years and years and years and years. Millennia, in fact. Think about this. 60 years ago, segregation was the law of the land. 60 years. 60 years. Some of us were alive. That's not that long ago. We're not that far removed from that. Think about this. Just before that, women couldn't vote. Think about that. How many wars has our own nation been in? How many wars have there been throughout history? Right? Violence, greed, corruption, brutality. What is going on in the world? And then we add on to that. All, we add into the mix all of the daily struggles between good and evil, like right and wrong, that we deal with on personal levels every single day of our lives. Some of them small, some of them larger, but we can't even get a handle on our own greed. We can't even get a handle on our own lust. We can't even, we can't even get a handle on our own quest for things like self-importance. What is going on in the world? So John's churches were asking these questions. We are asking these questions. And John's response is to write them this weird story. This really weird story, right? Revealing that there's a whole lot more going on, on in the world underneath the surface than meets the eye. He tells a story that sort of pulls back the curtain, unveiling what's really going on. So in this part of the vision, he sees a beautiful pregnant woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and she's got 12 stars around her. She's a symbol for Eve. She's a symbol for Israel. She sees this terrible dragon whose name is Satan, the devil, the evil one, and the dragon wants to kill the child. Then we have in verse 5 of chapter 12, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. You know what that little line is right there? Even Siri can't help with revelation. It's just too hard. Where did that come from? Was that back there? I don't know. That's fantastic. That was not here. I promise you. I had that happen, but my sound's off. Anyway, 
So let me read that again. Technology is wonderful. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Here's, here's what this is. This is the tiniest little, this is the tiny, tiniest little encapsulation, the little mini story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus put into context of the big giant cosmic battle between good and evil. That's what that is. Then in the next scene, we see the angel Michael with all of his angelic army in a fierce battle with with the dragon and the dragon's angelic, angelic army. But Michael and his angels are too strong and they defeat the dragon. Yay! We learn a little later on that how did they overcome the dragon? By the blood of the lamb. It was the sacrifice of Jesus, the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of Jesus that wins the battle. Next, the dragon is thrown down to earth. He knows he's been defeated. He knows he's lost. He knows he can't win. He knows his time is short. So what do you think he's going to do? He's going to throw a tantrum because he's really mad because that's what we do when we know we're not going to win. We know we're still roaming free and we're, we're going we're gonna to create as much chaos as we possibly can. Have you ever tried to parent a two-year-old? That's what we've got going on here. Going nuts. He's mad. So what does he do? Verse 17, the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Goes after the sons and daughters of Eve the sons and daughters of Israel, goes after the people who are trying to follow Jesus as best they can. So what John is saying here is that there is is evil at work in the world. And the spiritual forces of evil at work in the world actually manifest themselves in the physical. There's more, he's saying there's more going on in the world than meets the eye. There's more going on in the world underneath the surface that we just don't have eyes to see, but we see the effects of it. Paul talked about this in Ephesians. This is what he said in chapter 4. He said this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we feel that struggle every single day. More on that a little bit later. But next, in chapter 13, okay, we're doing work. I realize this. Hang with me. A little more work, and then we'll talk about what it might mean for us, okay? So chapter 13, John describes two beasts. Some of this stuff is so cool, by the way. Two beasts, one coming out of the sea, one coming out of the earth. So their job is to get people to worship the dragon and worship the ways of the dragon. So the beast from the sea seems to be a symbol for the Roman Empire coming across the Mediterranean Sea into Asia Minor and beyond. This beast has the power to to expand across and conquer through violence, coercion, brute force, manipulation. Tell me if you've heard this stuff before as we've been walking through the book of Revelation, including things like greed and lust and more. The beast from the earth seems to be the local powers in Asia Minor. 
in the cities of Asia Minor. Their job was to get the locals to follow the ways of the first beast from the sea, the Roman Empire, and ultimately to follow the ways of the dragon. And those who do are marked with a number. It's a symbol. Now, I'm going to say it again. We don't have to worry about people walking around with 666 on their foreheads. That doesn't make any sense. It's not going to happen. That's not, the way, that's not the way this works. But let's talk about that number 666 for a little bit. Remember, we're talking about metaphor. We're talking about symbol here. So the number is 666. What is six? It's one short of the perfect number seven. So in the ancient world, seven symbolized perfection completeness, wholeness. Another number also was a symbol for perfection, completeness, wholeness. That is three. So you've got, if you think about it this way, what would be the number for God representing perfect perfection? It would be seven, seven, seven. So three, perfect number, three sevens, the other perfect number, seven, seven, seven. So six, six, six is just short of perfect, but you've got the perfect three, so you've got perfectly imperfect. Does that make sense? It's, it's the symbol of the character of those who follow the dragon and his ways. And oftentimes, we know this character when we see it. We understand it when we see it manifesting itself in the lives of others. We know it when it manifests itself in our own lives, right? Here's another interesting thing. The dragon and the two beasts, this is cool, are a, are a parody or an imitation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you've got the dragon, a beast, and a beast. And they're just a parody, an imitation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you have these two trinities, both of them are are promising exactly the same things. Health, prosperity, peace, security, wholeness, happiness. But they both go about it in very different ways. So the dragon and its two beasts do it through violence, through through coercion, through brute force, always at the expense of others. But it's never able to deliver it perfectly. And then you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God goes about it through grace and love at the expense and self-sacrifice of himself, his own son. And that is the only way that those things can be truly delivered. So John is saying, we have a choice. Tell me if this theme sounds familiar to you. We have a choice. Follow the dragon or follow the lamb. Follow the ways of the dragon or the ways of the lamb. And when we follow the lamb, we're being invited into the cosmic battle to overcome and defeat evil. That's what we're being invited into. The battle to defeat, overcome the cosmic forces of evil. We got to be careful now. Because when we hear that word battle, when we hear that the idea of defeating something, what do we think of? 
think of violence. We think of all of those things, coercion. We think of manipulation. We think of military. We think of guns. We think of bombs. We think of bullets. Because how else do you defeat a dragon? Give me a nuke, for goodness sakes. I mean, if we're going to defeat a dragon, I need a nuke. It's the only way we can defeat a dragon, right? But in chapter 14 now, what do we see? Here's what we see. We see the lamb mustering his most elite, his elite, his elite warriors. And what do we see them doing? They're playing instruments and singing. They're playing instruments. Jesus' elite warriors are playing instruments and singing. Jesus' elite warriors are the band kids, the chorus kids, the orchestra, not the football players. Jesus' elite warriors are worshiping. They're singing. They're living quiet, holy lives. Later on, we understand that they, they overcome through the blood of the Lamb, self-sacrificing, self-giving love. It's like artistry. Right? And through their, we learn later on that through their patient endurance, refusing the ways of the dragon, it eventually leads to their death. But in their patient endurance, even to the point of death, to the point of suffering, they participate in God's judgment against evil because evil is shown to be what it really is. There's a better way, the way of the Lamb. So we choose to follow. We get to choose. Follow the dragon in his ways. Follow the Lamb or his ways in all that we say and do. Now I want, I want to read to you some, some Eugene Peterson. This is from his book on Revelation. It's called Reversed Thunder. If you read one book on the book of Revelation, read this one. It's kind of hard to find right now, by the way. Reversed Thunder is what it's called. It's not a verse by verse. It's like a, a higher, a higher you're, you're in a plane looking down, looking at themes. I've sort of taken my cue walking through this from him. It's fantastic. Listen to his words. He says, we choose. We follow the dragon and his beasts along their parade route, conspicuous with the worship of splendid images, elaborated in mysterious symbols, fond of statistics, taking on whatever role is necessary to make a good show and get the applause of the crowd in order to get access to power and become self-important. Or... We follow the lamb along a farmyard route, worshiping the invisible, listening to the foolishness of preaching, practicing a holy life that involves heroically difficult acts that no one will ever notice 
in order to become simply our eternal selves in an eternal city. He says, it is the difference between wanting to use the people around us to become powerful and to force our ideas and our ways on everyone else. It is the difference. Have we seen this happening? Even Jesus' people. It is the difference between wanting to use the people around us to become powerful and entering into covenants with the people around us so that the power of salvation extends into every part of the neighborhood, the society, and the world that God loves. Oh, we can grasp after power. We can grab power. We can use people to gain that power and force our way of life, force things on people. Or we can quietly love our neighbors who will love their neighbors who will love. It's more subversive underneath the surface and it spreads just like that. Oh, it's beautiful. So we get to choose. Will we follow the dragon or will we follow the lamb? And we, we bump up against this sort of stuff all the time in our lives. Sometimes it's in really small ways. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's black and white. It's easy for us to choose. I'm going to follow the lamb here. Sometimes it's really hard. Here's an easy one. I've told this story before, but it's one of my favorite. So there was this time when we, were, we ordered pizza. I was at work. Renee ordered pizza. And I was going to go pick it up and bring it home. We were going to have it for dinner. So she orders pizza on my way to the pizza place. I call her up and I'm like, uh, I want to get the details. She tells me what kind of pizza she ordered and that it was going to cost me $20 and some odd cents. I walk into the pizza place. I tell them my name. She brings out the pizza, puts it in front of me, and she says, have a great night. I look down and there's a receipt that says, paid in full, $20 and some odd cents. Now I know that we have not paid for this pizza. I know it because I just talked to Renee on the phone. I'm on my way to the pizza place. And she said, you're going to have to pay $20 and some odd cents. So I know we haven't paid for the pizza. So at this point, and this happens in a split second, two little me's have a conversation with myself. The one little me says, dude, free pizza. That's awesome. Like you work hard. Everyone deserves something free every once in a while. Take the pizza back out of the door slowly. No one will ever know. And then there's this other side of me has a conversation with me. It says, come on, man, you know better than that. What kind of person do you want to be anyway? So there's sometimes it's black and white. What do you do? okay, I paid for the pizza. I was not going to tell you that and like leave it as a cliffhanger, but I paid for the pizza. I didn't want you worried about it suddenly. So you do, you wondered, right? Sometimes it's black and white. It's small. It's not going to make that much of a difference, but it's little heroic decisions that no one will ever see that are formative in our lives, that change us, that mold us. What kind of person do you want to be? So sometimes it's, it's really small, black and white, easy. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's hard. Like, how do we respond to people relationally, whether it's online or in person, right? Do we do it like a dragon? Are we condescending 
disrespectful? Do we lob verbal bombs? I mean, it's way easier to do this online than it is in person. We see it every single day online. Or do we follow the ways of the Lamb? Love, grace, ready to embrace the others. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes you come to an impasse. But at least, at the very least, you preserve relationship by dealing with people with love and grace. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's gray. Sometimes we don't know what to think. Sometimes we don't know where we're supposed to land on an issue. And I think when issues like this come up, I think it's best for us to stop, to take our time, and lean into the ways of the Lamb, leaning towards grace, leaning towards whatever will build up and not tear down. See, here's the deal. The ancients dealt in gray areas. You find it in the Bible. They were like, can I use this coin even though I know it has Caesar's image on it and it says the Son of God? Can I as a Jesus person still use this coin? Is that legal for me? Is God going to be mad? What do I do? Can I buy this slab of meat from the market knowing that just hours earlier it was slaughtered in sacrifice in the worship of some other God? Can I purchase this slab of meat and feed my family with it? It's a gray area. They didn't know what to do. It was very hard. Today we have gray areas. We have things like, we have things like systemic racism. We have things like white privilege. We have things in this world like, I mean, we just had a big whole thing happen not too long ago over Roe v. Wade and abortion and women's rights. And sometimes these things are gray. Now whatever, now, whatever we think, whatever our thoughts are on any of these things, I think we need to hold these things loosely. And we need to take a step back and remember grace and remember love and take a posture of curiosity, a willingness to learn, a willingness to take a step back and listen to the experience of other people and say to them, you know what? I need to hear your perspective. I need to understand all of your thoughts about this because I don't know that I understand this fully and completely and I can't make any decision about anything I don't understand. So sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's gray. Sometimes we don't know what to think and we don't know what to do. And that's the struggle, isn't it? The struggle is real. We're sort of involved in this great big battle, whether we want to be or not. This great big battle, this cosmic battle between good and evil. And that's the bottom line is this is hard. The struggle is real. There's more going on in the world than meets the eye. There's more going on underneath the surface. There are forces of evil that really do manifest themselves in the physical. All we have to do is look around and see it. And you and me and everybody else on the planet, for that matter, we have a choice to make. Will we follow the dragon and his ways? Or will we follow the lamb? Like following the lamb is infinitely more difficult. But we don't have to be afraid. Because we know how this book ends. Spoiler alert. 
the grace and love ultimately win in the end. We know about resurrection. So who will we follow? The ways of the dragon or the ways of the lamb? We have to choose. Let's pray.